is from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Hear God's word. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, as we turn our attention to you, we turn our gaze to the one who has attended us, the one who comes to us. And Lord, this day we would want to hear not the voice of a man who's desperately dependent upon mercy that you grant, but we want to hear through your scriptures to us the very voice of Christ, our Lord. Speak to us, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, there's a lot going on this time of year as we scurry to the finish line, right? Uh, Scurrying, some of you are already there. Some of you would like an an extra week uh, to get there. You're not going to get it. Uh, This uh, is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and Christmas Day is near. But among all the things that you will do this week, some of you will watch little Harry Bailey one more time slide through the ice at the end of that little slope, and you're going to watch George come to the rescue. Uh, That's been part of um, our family for a while, and maybe yours too. It's a scene that's, that's embedded in that film and in our minds, if you've seen it. If you haven't, where have you been? But it's a scene that sets the stage for the role that George will play in the rest of the film, right? I mean, he's there for the rescue, and and he turns out to rescue others in a variety of ways. There's one guy that apparently has never seen Frank Capra's 1946 film classic, a young man outside of Moscow, Russia, who's a few days ago, bet his friends that he could drive his car over a frozen river, only to find out that the ice was not nearly as thick as he thought. It's not a bad story in the end. Uh, No real damage to the driver. Uh, His pride was hurt. His friends are still laughing. And uh, he has been cited, however, by police. The owner of the car is likely to be fined for pollution 
and for wreaking havoc in a public place. So he gets off fairly easy, except for the foolishness that led him there to begin with. You know, Harry had some pretty good reasons for taking that sled down the hill because he had been watching others go down that hill. He had no reason to suspect. He had, in fact, every reason to suppose that the ice at the bottom would hold him, unlike our friend outside of Moscow. But the, the uncertainty, the fact is that both of them were dealing with uncertainties. Uh, uncertainties that are maybe unique, those are unique, but uncertainties are something that we all know a lot about, right? I mean, uncertainties mark our life in this world. If I take that job, will I get a better offer later? If I give my life to this person or move to that city, how will that work out? Is my retirement plan anywhere near adequate? I mean, there's all kinds of uncertainties. And, and we either learn to live with those uncertainties or we somehow fly in the face of them as a means of attempting to, pretending to be more confident maybe than we should. Now, if it's going down a hill on a sled, that's one thing. If it's driving your car over a frozen river, that's another. But there's actually bigger questions than that. There are bigger uncertainties that most of us have to come to terms with somewhere along the way. Some of us have and some of us are. And you're in that picture somewhere. You see, the biggest uncertainties that you will ever deal with are those that come at us through the question of the gospel and the truth upon which we base our lives. Here's the question. Are we as confident as we can be about these certainties that we've based our life around? Are we more confident than we should be? And somewhere in there, there's a question for you today. When it comes to these, these truth claims that we've been camping out with for now 13 weeks from John the Apostle, where do you land? Or maybe better, where does land. Where does the truth of the gospel land? In some cultures, <coughs> the, the acceptance and the tolerance of uncertainties varies from culture to culture. Some places the uncertainty is where does the next meal come from? But in this culture, we don't like uncertainties. And John seems to understand that that's reasonable to not like or want uncertainties because John comes bursting through the front door and says, there are things that can mark your life. There are things that do mark the life of a follower of Christ. There are certain things that you can know. That's why he's writing. 
He's, he, he's writing to say to us that the spiritual uncertainties that, that, that cling to us or nip at our heels lose their power to paralyze us in the face of the white hot heat of the gospel. John comes through the door to announce that. And he, as he started his letter, he says, I'm writing this to make my joy complete. And now he shows us what that joy consists of. And it's this. It comes in seeing that his dear children, he calls us, are continuing in the faith. He uses that language prior to this passage. To see his children continuing in the faith, believing in the name of the Son of God, and here it is before us today, and rejoicing in the certainty of eternal life. That's, that's the joy, and that's the content of that joy. You see, joy for the apostle, for his children, and for Christians in every generation is found in the conscious experience of fellowship with God the Father. The conscious experience of fellowship with God the Father through Jesus the Son within the community of his family, the church. That is the apostles' joy. Last week, we, we took a look at this verse, another verse, which verse 13, you could look at if you've got your Bibles, and I'll read it in a moment. But it's a controlling uh, notion, a controlling thought, really for the whole epistle in general, but for this passage before us in particular, and here it is. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. For the time that we have today, I want us to unpack it a little bit and just look at what we can know from this short few verses. What we can know, why we may not and how we can acquire or maintain that knowledge, that assurance. What we can know, why we may not, and how we maintain it. First, what we know. Actually, you could have come up with this sermon outline. Uh, just take a look at those verses. John's postscript, if we could call it that, uh, consists of three affirmations each beginning with a shout of confidence. We know, we know, we know. Three times he says that. And the first is this. What we can know, the first is this, that we can know that those who are of God are kept by God. You see that in verses 16 through 18. I'll start with verse 18. Listen to this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that, he says. Now, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with 1 John, you might have an echo or two here. One is, it sounds a little contradictory to something he said in chapter 1 about the fact that we all sin. We, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He makes that very clear coming through the front door. But, the, but what's going on, and he says the same thing again in, in chapter 3, that what he says here, and that is this, that while we are sinners, while we, while we break out of God's design for us, we, we stiff arm God's call upon our lives. There is something going on here that he wants us to note. 
And that is, it has to do with the tense of the verb. It's a present tense, which means, for those of you that remember grammar, it's an ongoing, continuing action that John is addressing. So he's saying that he who was born of God does not keep on sinning in the same path, in the same direction, doing the same things again and again and again without remorse. And that's huge. That is, that's, in fact, that's the key to understanding what John is saying here because what John is saying here has to fit with what John is saying elsewhere. I mean, he's not contradicting himself. He's amplifying what he has said about the nature, our human nature and our, and our proclivity and our tendency and our, and our abilities to creatively break out of God's manner and design for life. And he says in verse 16, he unpacks it further. You see, he stretches uh, back. I've just read really what amounts to a summary. But then in verse, the, the two previous verses, he lays out the, 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 uh, the, the matter before us. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Last week we talked about praying with assurance. This week it's living with assurance. But the praying that we talked about last week had to do with our own relationship, our love for God and our pursuit of him and our asking God. And he uses the same term, ask God here. So he's connecting last week with this by saying we pray first for ourselves and then we rightly pray for a brother that we see is about to fall. We pray for him or her. And that's what he's getting at here. And then what he talks about, and this is where we begin to lose the thread if we're not careful. If, we, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins not leading to death. Almost as a parenthesis, he says, there is sin which leads to death. I don't, I'm not saying pray for that. Because all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Are you with him? I mean, it's a little, it's a little, yeah, right. We need, we need to outline this thing, don't we? <laughs> and to understand what he's getting at. Essentially, it's this. He's, he's laying out the reality that sin has its consequences. The wages of sin is death, is the way Paul put it. And John is affirming that. The wages of sin is death. There is sin which leads to death. But there is sin which does not lead to death. What? What he's talking about here is you can classify sin in such a way that there is what amounts to an ultimate final rejection. And that's what he has in view. It's similar to what was in view in some other troublesome passages. And in Matthew 12, we read about an unpardonable sin. In Hebrews 6, we read about people falling away and not able to repent again. So you begin to see a picture that what the, the scriptures allow and describe is a final rejecting, turning away. That's what John is writing, addressing. He is saying, I'm not asking you to pray for that, to undo the way God has so set this up that there is a final rejection. And frankly, that is a warning. 
to all of us. But it's not what he's after here. What he's really after is for us to pray for those who are not that far down the road of final rejection, but who struggle. And don't we struggle? I mean, struggle is assumed in this Christian life. Read Romans 7. It is, it's part and parcel of our walk with Christ. We can expect, in fact, you could take those troublesome passages and lay them in one place and line up everything else that Scripture says, and it says this. Questions are allowed. Doubts are permitted. Failure is expected. But it's the willful final rejection that leads to death. And if that leaves you concerned, as John writes this letter, he's a pastor writing to believers. If that leaves you concerned about the state of your soul, then what John says to you is this. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about the person who, do, who is concerned for the state of their soul. I'm talking about the person who isn't. The one whose final rejection doesn't leave them with any second thoughts. John is saying... There is a sin that leads to death, but to pray for those who struggle. But he says more than that. He says more than ask God. He says that there is, that there is a remedy to this beyond and bigger and deeper than your best prayers. Because, he says, in verse 18... He who was born of God protects him. Now, he's just referred to us. Hang with me for a second. He's just referred to us who have been born of God. Now he says, he who was born of God keeps him. But there's a shift. He's not talking about your prayer protects the one who's about to fall. But there's another one. There's another one who was born of God. There's another greater one who was born of God. The second person of the Trinity was born that we celebrate and mark this Advent season. That's who he's pointing to. He's highlighting and pointing to Jesus, the Son of God, who protects. And, that's, and there is, do you hear the good news there? <laughs> it's not about, you see, my ability to avoid certain sins. It's not about the, the strength and and effectiveness of your prayers for me. It's the fact that I am kept by the Son of God, the one who was born of God. He is the one who keeps. Jesus prayed in that high, what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17, same author, John 17, recording this. Jesus says, I have kept them. And he's talking about you. I have kept them. The Son of God is the one who keeps. We can know that those who are of God are kept by God. One translation actually translates verse 18. It is the Son of God who keeps them safe. How great is that? That's, what we, that's one thing we can know. We can know 
that those who are of God are kept by God. The second one is this, verse 19. Look at it with me. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Essentially, we can know that we belong to God. We can know that with certainty and assurance. We, we, we see in this story as it plays out that there is a world, we just read about it, the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what we have come into. That's what we physically are born into. That's where our lives are lived. And that's who we are and where we are until. Until something grand and surprising takes place. You've seen the military op films. I mean, there's how six dozen versions of, of the special ops going in behind enemy lines when under the cover of dark with their night vision goggles, extracting the assets. <laughs> you know, you've seen that, haven't you? You've seen that played out again and again. And, and sometimes it really happens <laughs> where special ops shows up and, and then you are extracted because you've been determined a valuable asset that belongs somewhere else instead of captivity. You're his treasured possession, friends. You're not just determined an asset. You are his treasured possession. And the God who made this world has entered this world and established a rescue mission that has your name on it. You're on the list. You've been sought out. Your name has been named, and he has come for you. And that's why Paul writes and says in Colossians that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what's embedded in this notion that we are of God or from God in contrast to a world which is in the power of the evil one. You've been extracted. You've been bought. You've been purchased. You've been rescued. And you belong to God. You're not your own. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. And that is the place where life flourishes for you. And that's why John is so eager for you and us to know this, that we belong to God. We are, we've been taken out of the clutches of the evil one and we belong to, to his God's realm, to God's kingdom. Peter writes and basically says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, remember that, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, we still struggle. <laughs> struggle marks our lives. I told you that a moment ago. Struggle and questions and moral failure actually marks my life and yours. But it no longer defines us. You see, those things that we struggle with, the power of those things has been broken. That's what Christ did at the cross. He broke that power. We still struggle. 
but we are no longer under its grip. We are no longer compelled. We have another option. And that is to love the God who made us and called us to himself. We can know that we're kept. We can know that we belong. And we can know in verse 20 that the Son of God has given understanding and life. Basically, he says in verse 20, we can know that we know. Now we're getting our feet on some solid ground. We can know that we know. But how do we know anything? I mean, really, I mean, that sounds very philosophical, but the Bible takes us there. How do we know anything? Well, Paul says that faith comes from hearing. So one of the, one of the ways we know in the realm of faith is by hearing the truth. But, um, <clears throat> but there's more to know than that. And there's a kind of knowing that John pulls us toward with this text and these verbs, no, no, no. Uh, Augustine, I think, helps us here a little bit. Augustine says, if faith comes by hearing... Knowledge comes from seeing. Just using another sense. If faith comes from hearing, knowledge comes from seeing. Seeing something firsthand. And Augustine, bear with me, uh, talks about two categories. Sensible objects that we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. There's things that we can know firsthand like that. uh, That requires vision and light. Okay, I have to have a capacity to see, eyes that work, relatively. (laughs) I have to have vision, but I also have to have light because vision in the darkness does what? Nothing. (laughs) Vision in the dark is still dark. There has to be light. And there's where Augustine says, in the same way, just that's true of sensible objects. What about what he calls intelligible objects, those things that you can't touch with your hands, things like what John is writing about here. He says that there are sensible truths and objects that we can know if we have something like vision and something like light. You with me? Something like vision and something like light. So he says that this vision that we need is what we have when we are born of God and we have a new capacity to see things with the eyes of faith and know them in a way that we never did before. We can know in that sense that we have a spiritual eyes, so to speak. Paul writes about the eyes of your heart as an example. We can see with our eyes and know something. But we also need something like light. This spiritual vision, which I would venture to say virtually everyone in this room has because of your faith in Christ. I don't know all of you that well. Most of you have faith in Christ and as a result, a capacity to see things that you didn't before. But you still need light. And for Augustine, 
and for John, that is what he calls illumination. And he finds it rooted, guess where? The one who entered the world and came as light to illumine every heart. He came into the world, we read in First John, uh, John chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That second person of the Trinity is the illumination. He is the one who sheds light on everything and brings it out. It's like the light switch goes on, or maybe for you it's the dimmer switch has been dialed up a bit further. And we're beginning to see things that we didn't see before or maybe only saw in part. And we saw a shape, and now we know what that shape is. You see, we can know ultimately because Jesus is that light who has entered the darkness and who illumines and exposes and explains and instructs and guides us. And so we can know. The Son of God has given us understanding and life that we might see things that we couldn't see. There are two elements to it that he provides and offers. One is a new capacity to know him who is true. So we begin to see him and we begin to know him. When he talks about understanding, it could be that that he's looking back to Pentecost where John in in chapter 2 wrote, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You have received the Spirit of God who opens our eyes to see what we could not see and you are granted and given knowledge as a result. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, now we've received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's what John's up to here. He's helping us to see that there are things that we can know and there's one that we can know intimately. Jeremiah told us this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Jay, I love what J.I. Packer said about this notion, and yes, it's from his book, Knowing God. Once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? You know, that's what Advent is about. It's that God remembered his promise to send a redeemer to break into this world, to rescue, to restore, to grant sight 
that we be able to see things that are, that are there, that are true, that are lovely and beautiful, that we do not see until he does. There's a new capacity. That's what we may know quickly and not much time on these. Why we may not know as we can. That's what we can know. Why we may not know what we can know. It's tucked in that little verse at the end of this long, fairly long epistle that almost looks like it doesn't belong. (laughs) Some people have suggested these were maybe the very last words of Scripture ever written. Depending on when 1 John was composed, some think it was, it was late. And that these are the last words that were written where John writes to us, not as, a, not as an extraneous, where did this come from thought, but one that is tied to what he's just said. And I'll try to convince you of that. Little children, he says, keep yourselves from idols. You see... To see things, you not only have to have vision and light, you have to be looking in the right direction. (laughs) You can't be looking left when the object is right. And you can't be looking down when the object is up. And what is the object? What is this sight and truth and knowledge and vision all about? It's about the one who is true. And anything, friends that takes the place of the one who is true, the one who is lovely, the one who is beautiful, will leave you virtually blind. If you're looking anywhere else, you may see some lovely things, but they're really not lovely compared to the one who is true, the one who is beauty, the one who is lovely. You see, an idol is anything that threatens to come between us and the knowledge of God. It's anything, anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone in my life and yours, anything that holds my life, my devotion, anything that is central, anything that seems to be vital and essential, anything upon which I depend, and that might be a person, it might be a thing, it might be an accomplishment, it might be something that offers or suggests that it gives power. And maybe it's just myself. But anything that stands in the way is something that needs addressing. And that's how we, one of the reasons that we may not know is that we're looking in the wrong direction. Another reason, frankly, that we may not know is, remember, this was written to believers who have a spiritual eyesight And I don't want to assume that, and John doesn't either. He's writing to Christians, but one of the reasons that you may not know is that there is a prerequisite, this new birth, to be able to see things that are there and true. A new birth is a prerequisite. And that's a call. That's a call to you. But there's also the warning that he gives to the rest of us about idols in our lives. That's why we may not know as we can. But how do we acquire this and how do we maintain it? There's two things just we'll imparting. He says that we're to keep ourselves. That's what he says. 
Keep yourselves from idols. Uh, the, the, the verb there, the, the pronoun there is keep yourselves. There's something that we do. There's something, some, something that, that needs our attention. And guess what? It's ourselves. We, we are to keep ourselves. It's the same word that, that Luke used in, in Acts 28 to describe Paul in prison, who was kept by a jailer. He was in custody. And we're to, we're to do that. We're to have, be that vigilant about our own hearts and our own souls. It's the same word picture that Luke used in chapter 2 when he described shepherds watching their flocks at night. That's the kind of attention that we are to give to our own souls. We're to keep ourselves like a jailer, like a shepherd, even like Jesus who said, I have kept them. So there's some keeping to do. That's how we maintain this. But there's one other thing. And there it is. We are to not only to keep ourselves, we are to remember the truth. Keep ourselves, remember the truth. The truth about what? The truth about ourselves, purchased of God, who belong to God. We're to remember that. We're to remember the true nature of idols, that they promise more than they can deliver. And we're to remember the truth about God, the only one who is worthy of our, of our worship, the one who recognizes that and wrote the hymn, William Cooper wrote, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. That's the prayer of a heart that knows to keep itself and to remember the truth. In closing, <clears throat> Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, saw how important assurance is. That's what this passage is about. We, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. There's an assurance that, that John is, is not stretching for, he's, he's offering. He's declaring. It's a shout of confidence that we know, we know, we know. Watson understood this, how important it was, and he said this. Faith will make us walk, but assurance will make us run. How's that? Faith will make us walk, but assurance will make us run. Assurance, he says, will be as wings to the bird as weights to the clock to set all the wheels of obedience running. Assurance rooted in the gospel, demonstrated to us in the beauty and the face of Christ, the one who keeps you, the one who illumines and enlightens and shows you the way, who gave himself for you. That kind of assurance why, you could even run on ice. You could run on ice because it doesn't depend on your balance on these sidewalks. It doesn't depend on how thick the ice is. What it, what it depends upon is how strong the arms are that hold you. 
You can run on ice. You can sled down that hill. Don't take your car out on that river, though. But you can trust the one who holds you. Peter put it like this. There's an inheritance in heaven kept for you. And you, by the Spirit of God and the finished work of Christ, are being kept for that inheritance. We've come to the finish line of 1 John. But we haven't finished anything. We've got some running to do. By faith, with confidence, with hope, with joy, with anticipation. Because we belong to the one who is true. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would weave that kind of confidence and assurance into our souls. A knowing and a certainty that does not rest upon our abilities, on our intentions, but on your firm love of us and the finished work of Christ, the one whose face is lovely, the one whose work is sufficient, the one whose words are true. the one who is ours, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.